Kevin Mondro here, Coach Dro, D-R-O. Welcome back to the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast, the podcast where we advocate coaches and help young coaches learn from the coaches telling these stories. Before we start our conversation with an elite head coach, I had to share this quick personal story. A few days ago, I was at a wonderful family gathering, and I was talking to my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. Essentially, I was complaining about a potential employer not believing in me. My sister-in-law simply looked me in the eye and said, well, why don't you prove these people wrong? I was knocked back. I kind of said, what? Actually, I woke up at three in the morning that night and screamed to myself, dang, she was so right. If you are currently a coach who has been passed on multiple times this off season, let's take my sister-in-law's advice, roll up our sleeves, dig deep, and let's prove all these people wrong. Today, we are talking to Coach Greg Campy. Coach Campy is currently the head coach at Oakland University. Coach Campy just completed his 38th season at the helm of Oakland. After the recent retiring of Coach K, Coach Campy is now currently the second longest tenured head coach in Division I basketball, only behind Coach Jim Beheim at Syracuse. And at the age of 28, Coach Greg Campy was named the head coach of this mid-major powerhouse. Coach Greg Campy has 664 wins. He's been to the NCAA Division I tournament three times and the NCAA Division II tournament four times. Trust me, this podcast is loaded. I can't be more excited that Greg Campy spent close to 40 minutes with me. We actually recorded this podcast before he was the keynote speaker at the Detroit Athletic Club for a group of educators. His topic of his speech, leadership, should the template be changed. Wait till you hear Coach Campy cover this topic and so many more. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform that you are currently listening. Remember, we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Please keep telling your coaching friends about this podcast. The bigger audience we can create, the bigger impact we can make with younger coaches. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Enough of Coach Dro. Let's get to Coach Greg Campy and tell his story. After 38 years as a head coach, Coach Campy, why do you truly coach? Well, Kevin, I think anybody that's been in the business knows what the the reasons they do it, and especially they do it for a long time. And for me, I think competitiveness and the competitive spirit is the guiding factor between why I've coached so long. You know, as an athlete, as a player, as a kid, and then that's gone all of a sudden, and you still, you miss it so much and you want to be part of it. And that's what got me into the business. And then, you know, as you've done it as long as I've had, and you've had so many kids, when you hear from them, when you get texts from them, when you hear about their families and their children, and I'm actually coaching a child of a player I had 30 years ago. It's all-encompassing on how you feel about that, and it makes you feel good about that maybe you've been able to affect some lives in this world. Winning and losing is always important, but as you get older, that kind of goes away in it. You look more on how you can help young men and how you can see how you can affect their lives. And and then the other thing is, I don't know what I do. You know, people ask me all the time, when are you going to get out? What are you going to do? I I don't know what I would do if I got out. So 
I don't know. I'm kind of stuck to the stuck to the business. It's something I enjoy. It's it's a love hate relationship. You should know that more than anybody. I mean, it's it's yeah. a love hate relationship. So you mentioned, you know, obviously you were a very good football, basketball, baseball player. I know you were just recently playing still competitive baseball. You're an avid golfer, but you talked about this competitive spirit. Who inspired you to really want to coach, though? It's funny. There was a guy by the name of David McCracken, and Dave McCracken was the son of Branch McCracken, who was a longtime Indiana coach. Uh, he coached the Van Arsdales, and I'm talking about people now that, you know, nobody knows or remembers because I was young when they were playing and he was coaching. But he ran a basketball camp in Indiana called the Hoosier Basketball Camp. And I went there as a kid and I fell in love with the camp and went every year. And then when I was playing at Bowling Green, I would go there in the summers and I would spend my summers a counselor. And he's the one that kept telling me, you should be a coach, you should be a coach. My father had been a high school football coach at Saginaw Arthur Hill, and he had gotten out of the business, and he had told me all along, this is not something you want to do. Don't, you, I don't want you to go into coaching. But all of a sudden, my career was over, and Bob Nichols, the then coach at the University of Toledo, offered me a graduate assistantship. I had a chance to go to the Seattle Seahawks as a free agent, and I went into his office, and I said, I'm going to go to camp. Yeah, it was like a beginning of June, maybe, or mid-June, or maybe early July. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you know, I've been offered this free agent position with the Seahawks. I'm probably not going to make it, so, but I want to go, and I'll be back in a, in a few weeks probably. And he looked at me and said, Greg, he goes, I wish you all the best. He goes, but if you go, I'm going to have to fill this position. I can't gamble that you're going to not make it. And I had a tough decision to make, you know, and I chose to keep the graduate assistantship, which probably showed you the amount of confidence I had in myself to make it. That's how I got to where I am today, because I made that decision and I stayed. Why do you think guys with football backgrounds make really good basketball coaches? I think that the football background is, and if you listen to the Tom Izzo speak, and he always talks about toughness and yeah. things like that, I really think that, especially if you've played major college football, and you are part of the toughness that it takes. I mean, I, I was 5'9", 175 pounds when I was in college, so I was the biggest dude out there. And I played a position, in those days, the hash marks were a lot wider on the field, and I played what was called a short side corner, mm -hmm. which means I was more involved in run defense than actually pass defense. And, you know, I think one year I had a 100 and some tackles, and, and so you get the crap beat out of you. You know, you're taking an arc block out from a 285-pound tight end. So I, I do think that it teaches you, you know, having played that game. There was fear in the game of football. Right. I mean fear, you know. And to overcome your fear, you know, every Saturday. Football, I've always said football is the greatest game ever played on game day. The rest of it, no. Nah. <laughs> but on game day, it's the greatest day ever. We practice, but oh, no, no, I don't want to. So learning how to overcome fear and toughness was probably the biggest thing that I learned playing that game. And I think that, you know, the organization, when you're organizing practices and things like that, and you're organizing it for 85 to 100 players versus 12 to 15, I think it gives you a great organizational skill level that I think has really helped me through my coaching career. After 38 years as a head coach, where do you stand right now on your definition of leadership? Well, I'll tell you something, Tom. That's, that is really 
an interesting question, and it comes in play for me today because tonight I am speaking. I'm the keynote speaker at the Detroit Athletic Club to a big conference of educators mm-hmm. all across the state, the principals and the superintendents and that. The title of my speech is Leadership Should the Template Be Changed? And I really believe it should. I think that, and I don't want to go into a long run here, but I just think that, you know, if you look around today in the old fashioned leadership, servant leaders and all the all the books and everything that are out there about leadership. I think that it's a different world and a different time. And, it's, you know, a lot of people say it's a time of crisis. I don't know if that's the case or not. It's just a time of change. And you as a leader, we as leaders of our programs and team builders, we've got to figure out a way to get through to this generation of what they want. And I think it's really strange. And I'll, I'll leave it with this, but Right now, there's a guy named Zelensky whose country was attacked, and he is being talked about as the greatest leader since Churchill. Well, Churchill is, you know, 80 years ago, Mm. and why are we skipping all these leaders? Because we view Churchill as being so great, and that's what this guy is is being talked about and why, and the, the answer is because I think this world and this day and age, everyone thought that he would flee the country, take his family, care only about himself, which is what this, you know, what we're seeing in in the world today is people caring, not about the team, but about themselves. Do what's best for yourself, right? not what's best for the team. And unfortunately for those people, life is a team sport. And so you've got this leader who could have gotten on a plane, taken all the riches that he could gather from his country and go on exile somewhere which is what I think everybody expected him to do. And instead he said, no, he got his family out of there. He put on fatigues, picked up a gun, and he's down on the ground Mm. with the boots on the ground people leading a country at war with a superpower. And I think that's why he's being reveled as this great leader. And I think we have to look at that as leaders and get back to you know, getting our feet on the ground with these kids, you know, getting our hands dirty and getting in there with them. I think it's really a lesson on leadership for all of us right now. Hey, coach, I need a quick 30 second time out. If you are serious about getting better this off season, check out Deep, the life of Rob Murphy, alive with purpose. Coach Murphy is the current senior director of player personnel for the Detroit Pistons, as well as the president and general manager of the Motor City Crews. The book Deep chronicles Coach Murphy's remarkable journey from growing up in the toughest neighborhood in Detroit, nearly being killed, to landing an assistant coaching position at Syracuse University under the great Jim Beheim. Deep also gives incredible insight of a coach in the world of collegiate basketball, providing a behind-the-scenes view of both Syracuse and Eastern Michigan University basketball programs. Throughout this book, Murphy shares valuable life lessons that allowed him to defy the odds and become the basketball powerhouse that he is. In telling his story with truth and confidence, he provides a surge of inspiration to the rest of us. You can't control where you come from, but you can decide where you're going. Click on my show notes below to learn how to get a copy of Deep, the life of Rob Murphy, alive with purpose. Dwayne Stevens recently told me that nobody spends more time with their guys than you and Coach Izzo. And then 
I just texted with DJ Mosini yesterday and he told me that nobody cares about his players as much as you as or much as a coach that he's ever been around. Furthering on your team emphasis, like when did this become such a priority for you? Well, I, I think that, you know, when I first got in the business, like everybody else, you know, I'm going to. I was an assistant at Toledo. I was 28 years old. I was the youngest head coach in the country. Mm. And I, my thing was, I'm a, I just wanted a head coaching job. I didn't want to be an assistant anymore. So I took the first one I could get, a school I'd never heard of, a school I thought was in California when I first heard the name. <laughs> I took that job and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go there and win the national championship my first year. And then I'm going to go be the head coach at UCLA and I'm going to break all the job wooden practice. Right. I think, Anybody in that day, maybe not as brash as that, mm-hmm. but I think if everybody would honestly tell what they were thinking, they would think those things. And I think most young kids today, the young young men that get involved in the business, think that way. And you, you know, it's my way or the highway. And you used to coach thinking, you know, I don't want anybody out there to think that I'm going to let a kid do this or let a kid do that, and that we lack discipline that we don't play hard. And, you know, that, that, those were the uh, guiding principles on how I wanted people to view my team. And I don't know, but somewhere along the line, that all changed. And I didn't care about that stuff anymore, you know. I wanted to have a family. I wanted my kids to have success. I, I wanted to get to know players and know what their dreams are mm. and help them accomplish their dreams. Mm. And I knew that if I had good players that accomplished their dreams, we'd win games. And I don't know where that was, but somewhere along the line that happened. And and I I go back to that old saying, when you're in your 20s, you really care about what people think. When you get to your 40s, you stop caring about what people think. And then when you get to your 60s, you realize nobody ever thought about you. You know, they ever cared about it. You know, they just (laughs) worried about themselves. So, you know, it's a progression in life. And I, you know, I hit all three of those progressions now. The most important thing for us is you've got to have non-negotiables. Okay. As a coach, you have to have non-negotiables in all facets of it. You have to have non-negotiables on how you run your offense. You got to have non-negotiables on your defense. You got to have non-negotiables on special teams. And then you have to have non-negotiables that surround your program. The problem is you can't have many of them. And I've learned over time, you've got to limit your non-negotiables. For example, on offense, our non-negotiables this year are going to be, you have to sprint, you have to share, and you have to space. Anything else, you're on your own. You know what I'm saying? That there are no, you have to sh- shot, fake, and shoot. You have to slide a foot. You get so many of those, you end up not having any. Yeah. So we limit them. I'm giving you three things. Those three things have to guide what you do. And if you don't do those three things, I have a right to yank you out of the game. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you take a bad shot, I'm okay with that. All great players take bad shots. So what I don't want to do is put you in a circle and say, you have to stay in this circle. I'm going to give you guidelines and here are your three offensive non-negotiables. In life, I think that your non-negotiables, if you're going to be a leader, have to be things that the players respect and understand. You know, one of the non-negotiables that we have, and very few anymore, are you can't be late. You have to be on time. And I could tell you a great story about that if there's time. Go for it. (laughs) Okay. Anybody that knows open basketball knows the name Travis Bader. For sure. Travis Bader, right. He he ended up being, I think he was an All-American and all everything. And 
he ended up when he graduated from college. He was the all-time leading scorer, or excuse me, the all-time leading three-point shot maker mm-hmm. in the history of college basketball, all time. And he played on some great teams. We went to the NCAA tournament back-to-back years. We we beat top ten teams in the country. We, yeah. You know, we had we had a great run. We had a run of fifty and three in league play. Which wow. If you think about that, it's that's incredible. Astounding, right? Mm. So Travis was a big part of that. So having said that, now let's go to came to Oakland and we redshirted him as a freshman because he looked like he was 12 years old. My nickname for him was McLovin because back then there was a, a movie, I can't remember the movie now, but the, some young kid had a fake ID and he put McLovin the name on the right. fake ID. I can't. Yep, yep. And so that's what, because he looked like he was so young, I, when his redshirt year, I called him McLovin. So now we go to his freshman year, the redshirt year's over and we're starting and we open the season at West Virginia and West Virginia was coming off a final four appearance and they were, you know, preseason top, whatever. And we're, and Travis isn't even on my radar to play, you know, his fresh, his redshirt years over, we've gone through the preseason and he's the third shooting guard that I would put in the game. And he, there's no chance he's going to play in the West Virginia game unless we end up getting run out of the building or something and he'll play at the end of the game. So shoot around on the day of the game, as as most people know, teams go to the arena and they shoot for 30 minutes to an hour just to get those and walk through your game plan and things like that. So we get on the bus to go to shoot around and we're leaving at quarter to 12 to go over. And I'm sitting on the bus and I look at my phone and it's 1145 and I'm getting ready to say to the bus driver, let's go. And there's my starting two guard and his backup mm. aren't on the bus. Reggie Hamilton, who was became, you know, first team all league and, a, and led the nation in scoring, Man, not that year, but the next year. Yes. <laughs> wow. And his backup, Liedrich Echols, were not on the bus. And I'm getting ready to say, let's go. And I see them come out the, the door of the hotel. And by the time they get on the bus, it's, a, it's 1146. Mm. So I'm, they get on. I don't say a word. We get to the arena. We, we go through the shoot-around. We come up after the arena or after the shoot-around into the middle of the floor. And I tell everybody, Liedrich and Reggie were late for the bus. And they go, no, we weren't. We got there. No, you got there at 1146. Mm. And you're late for the bus. And that's a non-negotiable. And Reggie, you won't start tonight. And Liedrich, you won't play in the first half. Wow. And we got back on the bus and left, and now we come back to the arena, and we're standing outside the locker room before the game starts, and I look at my staff, and I go, am I really going to start Travis Bader against West Virginia because a kid was a half a minute late? And they're all, nah, let's not do that. No, you know, let's, I mean, he was on the bus, you know, and I, and I looked at him, and I go, you know, it's the first game of the year. If we do this by the 10th game of the year, they're going to be 10 minutes late. Yeah. And they're all going to go back to this and say, well, you, you know. So I looked at him. I said, we're going to start Bader. Well, we went out against West Virginia, and the score at one point was 14 to 10. And Travis Bader had 12 of our 14 points, and he never came out of the lineup from that time on. I mean, it's, it's just an unbelievable. I mean, here's a kid that I didn't even think about. Yeah. You know, there's no way you're even going to play. Yeah. And he – he ended up making 93 threes as a freshman. And if Reggie Hamilton and Le- 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 Nichols hadn't 
uh, Eccles hadn't been a half a minute late, yeah. probably wouldn't have played. I mean, he would have found his way because they find their way in. Yeah. But he would have maybe been halfway through the year. He would have never broke that three-point shooting record because, you know, to break that record, you have to have a good freshman year. And, you know, he probably would have made 43s his freshman year instead of 93. That's an outstanding story about leadership for sure, real life there. So your assistant tree, I mentioned Dwayne Stevens. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, you look at Drew Valentine. We talked about DJ, Cornell Mann, Sadi Washington, John Borovich, just to name a few. And you guys have a great staff right now. Coach Smith, Coach Jones, Coach Covington. This podcast is driven toward younger coaches. What do you look for in an assistant coach? Well, the template for that says loyalty and hardworking, right? Mm-hmm. For me, I think it's really, really important that you have the ability to teach Mm. more than anything. I think that is the number one priority that I want from an assistant coach, the ability to teach and not just basketball, to be able to teach life lessons too. Because the relationships that an assistant coach has with their players is probably what drives a basketball program more so than any relationship I have with a kid, more so than any, because kids, and again, it, as we talked about earlier, it's changing and they, they come in. You know, we've gotten at the college level to the group of young men that started out in seventh grade, sixth grade, fifth grade, fourth grade AAU, and where if they didn't play, they found a different place to play. Right. You know, back in our days, if you didn't play, you hey, I got to get better. Right. You know, now it's, I'm not playing. I got to find a team that I can play on. That's what we're dealing with today. So having a relationship with these young men who have come through life with that, you know, leave and go here, leave and go there. You know, these kids have been, I call bubble wrap. And, you know, so how do you, how do we teach our non-negotiables? How do we teach our leadership skills? How do we get through to these young men so that a, they can become successful because again, the philosophy isn't, you know, nobody wants to hear about the team anymore. And so the philosophy is leaning towards, okay, if I can get you and help you reach your dreams, we'll be successful as a team. We'll win. Cause my job, I mean, if I don't win, I'm going to get fired. Right. My assistant coaches, if they don't win, they're going to get fired. And so we have to keep that, and understand that our lives, our lives are important too. You know, our lives are predicated by mm-hmm. winning. So it's just the formula of, you know, if we can teach, if we can teach life skills, if we can teach basketball skills, if we can have a relationship with the young men, then we'll be successful. So that's the number one thing. I think they have to be teachable. Number two, they have to be driven. What I mean by that is that. I don't want an assistant coach that I've got to walk through what they do. Mm. That we we meet very seldom on my staff. We probably meet less than any staff in the country. Oh, I I'll yeah, no kidding. I'll tell you what I want, and if you need help doing it, come see me, and we'll sit down and I'll show you how I think it should be done. Mm-hmm. If not, I'll give you an example. So last year I put Mike Covington in charge of rebounding. Yeah. Right. And I said, okay, Mike, you're going to be, you've got rebounding. You're going to have 10 minutes in every practice, mm. 10 minutes. It's yours. We got to rebound the ball better. It's yours. 
Now, I watched those 10 minutes every time, every day of practice, obviously. There were probably three times that I went up to him and I said, I'd like to see more of an emphasis on this. I don't like that particular drill. You know, in just a conversation piece, not a, not a, right. you know, what the hell are you doing wrong piece? It's just in a conversation piece. Um, you know, right. It's, I gave him, this is yours. Yeah. All right. I want you to be driven to be the best at that. That's what this team needs. We need to get better rebounding. And I personally want you to do that for us. And so I'll do that with my assistant coaches, but I don't want to be over their shoulder. I don't want to be, oh, I don't like that. You know, or what do you, you know, I, if there's a couple drills that I see that I'll say, I don't want to do that, see that drill again. Let's do something better. And that, so those are the things that I give my staff ownership into what we do so they've got to be driven if they're going to be able to take the ownership into what we do and then you know they've got to be able to have relationships with all diverse sets of people yeah. because in the recruiting world you're going to come in to meet everything new. Uh, i'm probably not a person from every walk of life with it yeah every weirdness that they could have to every great attribute that people have I've probably met somebody like that and tried to recruit their, ch- their child. And so they've got to be able to have relationships with a diverse set of people. And other than that, if you want to be a coach, you've got to get to know people because I don't know many people that hire people they don't know. You know, Jeff Tungate, your women's head coach, shared a story with me recently. And he said that, and I think this is a gr- another great example of how you empower your staff. He said he was out on a, you just hired him, he's out on a recruiting visit maybe out in Indiana, loved the kid, came back, like, hey, coach, this guy's a perfect fit. And then you said to him, why didn't you offer him? He said, well, I didn't, I didn't, I I wanted to check with you first. Jeff told me that you told him, he said, well, that's why I hired you. It's a great example of empowering a staff. I love that. Is that another example of your wanting your assistants to be driven? Exactly. I I think that that, you know, I want you to believe that you have total ownership in what we do. And there's obviously there are lines that have to be drawn, you know, because in any successful organization, there's hierarchy. But I want those lines to be blurred. I don't want those lines to be set in stone. Mm. I'm never fearful of assistant coach. If I've done a good job hiring a guy and I've done a good job, you know, I, I don't believe it's my job to mentor assistant coaches. I'm, I'm far from that. Hmm. I believe it's your job. Here's what I tell. (laughs) Here's what I tell every assistant coach I've ever hired. Okay. Yeah. The first day when they walk into my staff, well, I'm not, I'm not talking about elbows. I'm talking about full-time assistant coaches. Mm -hmm. The first day that they have the job, I bring them in my office and I look at them and I say, for the next year, I don't give what you know. I don't care what you know. I I don't want to hear a word from you on what you know. Okay. I want you to figure out what I know. I want you to figure out what we do, how we do it. And then a year from now, I want you to be an expert on it so that now you can tell me how to make it better. Mm. Okay. I don't want to hear what this guy said or what somebody told you once or how you can, I want you to know 100% what we do. I want to know the, you to know my passions, what's important to me, what my non-negotiables are, what has driven me to get to where I am. And then once you know all that, you make me better. You make this program better. You make this team better. 
And you can only do that if you empower them. They have to have the right to feel that, you know, they should hire that coach or they should offer that kid because I know that's what my job is, is to go find players. So I don't know where I got that from or why, but it just grew over the years. Hey, coach, I need one more 30-second timeout, and I need to tell you about my affiliate partner that I've been supporting since episode one, that friend, Desmond Ferguson, the owner of Moneyball Sportswear. Check out MoneyballSportswear.com. Let me tell you about the gear that Moneyball produces. Men's, women's, boys, and girls sports attire. Get all your spring. That's right, I said it. Spring gear ASAP. Truly, what are you waiting for? And if you are high school, and especially an AAU coach getting into the AAU season this spring and summer, and you need a new set of uniforms, please reach out to Moneyball. The uniforms that Desmond and his team create are simply spectacular. Go to moneyballsportswear.com, shop away, enter the promo code DRO, D-R-O, in the coupon checkout. Grow with us, Moneyball, the only way to ball. Now that I'm no longer in college athletics, I was talking to a parent yesterday, and he was sending me some video about his son making shots. And then I told him, it's so ironic, I'm doing a podcast tomorrow with Greg Campy. And I once read a tweet, and you're awesome on social media, by the way. You said you you ask your players to make 30,000 shots in the summer. And you said, you know, obviously you can't require them, but you ask them. But you said some of your best guys have made 50,000. You mentioned Hamilton, you mentioned Bader. Like the mindset of getting shots up in bulk and makes, has that been a big staple of how you've tried to build shooters? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's there's only way one way to become a great shooter, and that's repetition. And the repetition is more in my opinion, the repetition is more for your mind than it is even for your body. Mm. You know, it, it's to me, the most important piece of shooting is what's inside your head. And you look at a Steph Curry and you look at some of the shots he makes and, and how, and it's just, he knows, he knows it's going in and he's shot so many shots in his life that there's just this repetition of, right. you know, and, and then it's the body and the mind. It's like you with and an so, <laughs> I'd hope so. Body and the mind. Sorry, so, sorry for interrupting. Yeah. <laughs> but so what we do is, is you know, we try in the off season from May 1 to September 1. We I don't want you. Sh- I don't want shooters. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, any kid, anybody can be a shooter. I want makers. Mm-hmm. I want guys that make shots. And so I, we never talk about shooters. We talk about makers. And we never talk about how many shots you shoot. We want to know how many you make. And so when we talk to players, and again, the NCAA can't make me give kids things to do in the summer and right. mandate it. I can only make suggestions. Right. So my suggestions to them are to make 30,000 shots between May 1 and September. And then I tell them the, great, the greatest players I've had have taken that. And I believe. I can't now remember which one it was, but it was either Travis or Reggie. And they were in a, they played together and obviously about that last story. And their last year they played together, they became one of three sets of players to both make over a hundred threes in one season. Wow. You know, on the same team. I mean, Travis made 128 and Reggie made 117 or something like that on the same team. But they competed like that. As they were great teammates that had a competitive spirit with each other, on the, and they were always in the gym together. 
And like one of them made 50,000. The other one was like 45 or 46 and then was mad when they found out that the other one made more than they did. <laughs> so yeah, that, that competition is always good, but we want to make shots. Mm, I love that. You know, a few years back when I was with coach Murphy at Eastern Michigan, we played a home and home in the same year. And it was, it was a really, really fun series came to our place. You know, we obviously played the zone. I think none was a little injured, didn't play his best game, but still you kind of went with your traditional zone offensive package and we got you guys, but it was a high scoring game. It was a great game. You easily could have won the game. Then two weeks later, we went to your place and you put two zone sets in that. And I, and, and I know you've been a head coach for 38 years, but it's, it's truly the best two zone plays that we faced in our 10 years at Eastern Michigan. How do you adjust as a head coach? You know, I had to sit down and analyze myself and we're all good at things. And we're all, if we're honest, we're all bad at things. You know, there's areas that, or maybe it's not that we're bad in them. They just don't mean as much uh, to you as they might to a, you know, philosophically as they might to a different coach. So for me, the thing that I've always been like a tinkering professor is offense. And, you know, I've just, one of the things that's been the ability in my career is to see something run plays and be able to have success doing that. And one of the, we went into that game against you guys, the first game, and I thought we were better than you. I had a really good team that year. And I wanted, you know, we, I think we were going to play Syracuse later in the year too. Yeah. And your coach, Coach Murphy had been an assistant at Syracuse, and you guys ran a very similar zone. And so I wanted to go into your game, and I just wanted to run offense, mm-hmm. you know, just our base offense and beat you with it, and then learn from your defense so that when we played Syracuse, mm-hmm. well, you beat us, and it was a high-scoring game, but I don't think we ran good offense in it. Mm-hmm. I think there was, you know, we made shots because we had talented people, but you, your zone was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And it we made tough shots, and we lost. And so I went home that night and I was really mad at myself and that we didn't, you know, we didn't, it was a non-league game. Right. A lot of times in the non-league, you want to see what you're doing and see if it works so that when you get into league, you're ready for things. Well, nobody in our league really ran that zone. So it was more for Syracuse. Yeah. And so I went home and I was mad at myself. I was up that whole night. And I knew we were playing in a couple of weeks and before we played Syracuse and that wasn't going to happen again. And we just, you know, you just watch things and things come to you. And I saw a little couple little things there that if we would do this. Now, the, the key to this, as you know, is you have to have the personnel to do it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some plays are really good and some plays are great. And the reason some plays are great is because you have people that can make the play. And, and we, I had some, you know, we told, it's funny because we told Jalen Hayes before we played you guys the second time, I said, Jalen, if we'll execute this stuff, you will score 40 points. And I believe he had 30 in the first half. Yeah, he did. And, yeah, and it, it just, there was a little tweak there that we found. And I'm sure after that game, you guys looked at that and figured out what we were doing and tweaked your zone so that that wouldn't happen again. Why do you play anyone anywhere? It's the only way you're going to get recognition and get better when you're Oakland. Mm. You know, when you're Oakland, 
Remember, I I told you I didn't even know where Oakland was when I got off, uh, yeah. told about the job. The baseball coach at Toledo, I'm sitting at my desk, the baseball coach from Toledo, Stan Sanders, walks into my desk. I'm 27 or 28 years old. He looks at me and goes, hey, we played a school yesterday, and which should have told me it wasn't in, in California. But he goes, we played a school yesterday in baseball, and their campus is really nice. And your head basketball jobs open and you should take a look at it. I go, wow. really? I go, where is it? He goes, Oakland University. I looked at him, I'm not going to California, Stan. <laughs> and he started laughing. He goes, no, it's in Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> and I had never heard of it. And so when you're a school that you've never heard of and kids at that point in time, when we first started playing and we went to Division One, how do we become recognizable? Okay. Well, A, we're going to put our names on our jersey under the numbers because nobody does that. So we put our names on the jersey under the numbers and people are going to see that. And they're going to go, oh, that's different and weird. And they're going to remember you. Mm. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to play on national TV. I don't care what the score is going to be. We're going to play on national TV. And the only way we're going to do that is by playing anybody anywhere. And so we do Kentucky. Every, we're going to play everybody. And then the third thing, and this took a long time to do because I could never get an athletic director to do it, is I wanted to paint our floor black. And so that when our floor became was on TV, people would, and to this day, like I'm recruiting a kid in California right now. Right. About two weeks ago when I first started talking to him, I said, what do you know about Oakland? He goes, well, not much. I go, well, you've seen us play, I guarantee you. He goes, no, coach, I don't think I have. I go, we have the black floor. Wow. He goes, oh, yeah, you guys are the guys with the black floor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, we did things to get recognized, to get our name out there. Now, you know, Joe Conservative would say to me, well, why wouldn't you just win? Yeah. And then people will know who you are. And you know what, Joe Conservative, you're right. But how do you win? Mm-hmm. You got to have players. How do you get players? Well, you got to have something that they want to come to, mm-hmm. you know. It's pretty cool. So your ability to give back is incredible. The amount of money you've raised for charities, your golf outing, amazing. Your social media, we touched on it. It's always about helping others. You had a post a couple of years ago about how you're on these walks and you befriended a man in the community and you he needed some help and you helped him. When did you become so giving? Like, why is that such a part of you? I think things that happen to us in life affect, take basketball out of it, right? So things that happen to you in life, obviously the reason I became associated with cancer is because I lost people to cancer. Mm. And I watched my best friend shrivel up and become nothing and pass away because of prostate cancer. I lost, you know, numerous people. Now that doesn't make me any bit different or special because everybody's lost people to cancer. Right. I don't think there's anybody in the world that's 60 years old that hasn't been affected by cancer and yet we can't cure it. And so I have a platform uh, because I've had a little bit of success in life. I've been at the same place for a long time. I have a, I'm in a position to make a difference. And so what are you going to do? Just go play golf all your life and hide from that? Or are you going to do something when you know how it affects your life? You know, we talked before we we did this about I have had a hip replaced. Well, I had a hip replaced uh, a month ago. Yeah. And within three hours after I had my hip replaced, 
I was up and walking. And if you look at what they do in a hip replacement, they cut you open, they saw you, your hip out, and they pound in a titanium rod into your femur that has a fake ball in it and socket, and they do that to you. Mm. Three hours after I had hip replacement, I was walking, and they taught me how to walk up. I walked up four stairs. If we can do that, how can we not cure cancer? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. How can we, I mean, it, it makes you think about things like that. So how can I use what little swag that I have in the community with, you know, how can I do that to help people? And that's become important to me as I get into the late stage of my career and the late stage of life. Yeah. How can that become important? How, how can I, that's become important. And how can I use my, whatever I have, juice of any kind to help with that and that's what I've done and once you start doing that people reach out and, and they want you to do more and so I'm going to do as much as I can as long as you know as long as I'm able to I'm going to continue and do as much as I can to help in those areas that affected my life that's awesome so I always end the podcast and you've dropped a bunch <laughs> of them but what are some simple tips for young coaches you've got to get out and know people so and it can't be me. It can't be the Greg Campies of the world because, like, for me and my staff, I'm going to hire, you know, people that, I mean, there's just a long list of people that I've had interactions with players. I've got a lot of players trying to become coaches. Mm -hmm. Michael Covington is doing a hell of a job for me as an assistant coach right now, played for me. Yeah. I'm always going to replace him with a different player. You know, when Michael gets his next job, I'm going to. So it, you can't go to a guy like Greg Campy who's been around forever. You've got to get to the next tier. You've got to get to the Jeff Smith. Jeff's my associate head coach. Yeah, great coach. Jeff's going to be a head coach. Yes, he's going to be a head coach someday. You've got to get to him so that when he gets his head coaching job, he wants you. And it's all relationships. If you have the attributes to have good relationships, you'll probably have the attributes to be a good assistant coach. So many think it's the X's and O's, and yes, they're important, but there are very, very few head coaches that are going to just turn their offense or their defense over to some young, new coach. It's you go in with a being a sponge and learn and learn from everybody that you ever talk to. And once you then are in that situation, I mean, I became a head coach at age 28. I made more mistakes from 28 to 34 than you could possibly because I only knew one thing. Yeah. I knew what Bob Nichols had taught me mm -hmm. and I knew what I wanted and half the things that Bob Nichols taught me I thought were wrong. <laughs> and over the first couple of years, I realized, geez, Bob Nichols was a lot smarter than I gave him <laughs> because all these things I thought I wanted to do, they, they weren't working. <laughs> well, I appreciate our real relationship over the years. I mean, for my first day in coaching, at Detroit, you've always been so great to me. So, you know, I just, and then you've demonstrated, but I, I just think you're an elite coach. I think you're even more elite person. And I just thank you for helping me today doing this. And, and I'm just so appreciative for you taking some time and helping young coaches. Well, Kevin, you know, you've, you've done this job and you know, you know, the ups and downs of it. And I think that what you're doing with this podcast and trying to get information out, this is, something if I was 22, 23 years old, I would listen to every one of these things because these are the types of things you're going to hear in there, something that's going to move you that'll help you become successful as a young coach and doing that for everybody's just great. You know, I wish you all the best, man. 
Thanks, Coach. That was a great conversation with Coach Greg Campy. Here are a few things that I love that Coach Campy said on leadership. It's a time of change. We have to figure out how to get through to our young people. Life is a team sport. We have to get off our feet on the ground with our kids. I'm spending time with his players. He wants to get to know his players and what their dreams are. And he wants to help them accomplish their dreams. Loved when Coach Campy talked about the non-negotiables in his program. You can't have too many of them. His three on offense for this season, sprint, share, space. You can't be late. And the incredible example that Coach Campy shared on illustrating this non-negotiable. Did you catch when Coach Campy said they were 50-3 and in league play? Wow. Coach Campy's thoughts on assistant coaches, so good. You have to have the ability to teach his number one priority. Teach basketball and in life too. Relationships of an assistant coach in the player drives a basketball program. You have to be driven. Coach Campy gives his staff ownership. You have to have relationships with diverse sets of people. In year one, figure out what I know. In year two, you make me better. You make the program better. Really good. And shooting the basketball. There's only one way to be a great shooter. Repetition. Steph Curry knows it's going in. The connection of the mind and the body. Coach Campy does not want shooters. He wants makers. And he suggests his players making 30,000 shots from May 1st to September 1st. Loved his thoughts on playing anyone, anywhere. Wanted to play on national TV, no matter who. Painted his floor black. How to win. Have to have players. And on being so giving, watched his best friend pass away. He knew he was in a position to make a difference. And finally, his tips to young coaches. You gotta get out there and know people. It's all about relationships. Thank you, Coach Greg Campy, for sharing your story. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform that you are currently listening. Again, we are everywhere. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Stay safe. I can't say this enough. Be you. Keep coaching. And see you on the next episode of the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast.